Good morning, everybody. Welcome once again to the Digital Cathedral here in Houston, Texas. Glad to have you with, with me today, wherever you're watching from around the country and around the world. If you've been following us on Sunday mornings, you know that we're working our way through the book of Galatians. We started uh, in January on a, on a long journey through Galatians, and we're going to go through uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So the way it's looking, this might take us just about the whole year to get through those, those four books. Where we're at this morning is Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to finish up Galatians chapter 4 with verses 21 through 31. So if you want to grab your Bible real quick or, or your phone app, whatever's convenient, and follow along with, with the Scripture this morning, then next week, of course, we'll pick up with Galatians chapter 5. So let me go to Galatians chapter 4. Let's read verses 21 through 31 and see what we can pull out of what Paul is teaching to the Galatians. If, if you remember so far, what we've really emphasized is what Paul has emphasized, which is... Uh, the freedom from law that you have when you are in Christ. If there's a, if there's a gospel or a, um, an, a writing of Paul that you would like to ever utilize in a Bible study or teach from that shows liberty from religion, Galatians is the book. He, he dedicates this entire writing actually to helping them get free from religion and also, also the pull back into religion that often happens when we encounter the gospel. Paul hits that a little bit in this fourth chapter. So let's look at it from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 down through verse 31. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 starts out like this. He says, Tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? In other words, you don't, do you understand what the law is about? You that want to be under the law, do you, really, do you really get what the law is about? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. He's going to start drawing analogy now to law and grace, uh, freedom and bondage between the work of Abraham with a handmaiden Hagar and his wife Sarah. He says, for Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the bondwoman through promise, which things are symbolic. So he's telling us that he's speaking symbolically here. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which is the law, the Ten Commandments, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, the handmaiden. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Jerusalem, of course, was the center of the Jewish religion. So he's saying, look, I'm, I'm making, a, I'm making a, a symbolic teaching here. I'm teaching you metaphorically, and I'm likening Jerusalem to Hagar and Hagar to bondage, right? Verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is from above is free, which is the mother of us all, gave birth to us all. He says, rejoice, O barren, you who do not uh, bear, break forth and shout, for you who are in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, now we, brethren, as Isaac, was as the children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. And that's, that's so true. The one that, is, that has been born or has been brought up under the law always persecutes the one that comes from liberty or comes from the promise. We see that today with religion persecuting those of us that are walking in this liberty of grace. And this is what he's, what he's really getting at here. Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, cast out the law, the bondage, and um, because they shall not be here with the son of the, of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free. I know when you read through those, those 10 or 11 verses, if, if you don't understand the gist of what Paul's saying, it sounds a little bit confusing. Here's what he's really doing in these 11 verses. He's making an analogy between law and grace, between 
freedom and bondage, between flesh and spirit, between religion and gospel. Right? So he's setting up, he's setting up this dualistic comparison. Paul uses Hagar and Ishmael as a type of the law and the flesh activity to accomplish what God gave by promise. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah? God promised them in their old age, up in their 90s, that they would have a child. And when Sarah heard that promise, she actually laughed because she knew that she was past childbearing ages. But God made to them a promise. Now, as time went along, as so often happens, when time goes along and we don't seem to be acquiring what it is that God has told us we can have, then we try to accomplish it by the flesh. And that's what Abraham did. Sarah said, look, why don't you take my, my handmaiden, Hagar, she's a young woman, and she can bear the child. So Abraham bore a child with Hagar, and the child's name was Ishmael. So in Paul's analogy here, he's likening Ishmael to what happens when we try to do something of the flesh. So Paul's using Hagar and Ishmael as a type of law and flesh activity that we enter into to try to accomplish what God has given us by promise, which was the promised son, Isaac, through Sarah, which actually happened even though they were approaching 100 years old. Now, here's, here's what I want to pull out of that. I want to bring that out of that context. I want to bring it into today. I want to make sure as we end this fourth chapter of Galatians, I want to make sure that you are living uh, gospel-free, that you're actually living free in, in grace and liberty, and that you have no more Hagar entanglements, that you have no more religious entanglements, that there's not a bondage that's still clinging to your life. God has promised to us, God has given to you and me a promise, just as he did Abraham, but if we try to fulfill the promise that God has given us of salvation, of wholeness, of liberty, of freedom, everything that Jesus provided for us through the finished work of the cross, if we try to perform that by a flesh activity, then we produce what Abraham produced, which is an Ishmael. You ever had any Ishmaels in your life? God has promised you something and you, you grow weary of waiting for the completion of the promise, so you set out to accomplish it yourself. What you produce in your flesh effort is called Ishmael. And those are the things that after, after we get done producing this thing in the flesh that we've tried diligently to do because we thought we were helping God out, giving God a hand in the production of the promise, those are the things that we end up throwing our hands up and saying, Could you help me get out of this mess? produce a mess. Ishmael's always produce less than, than God's best. God has promised us just as God promised Abraham, but if we try to complete through our flesh actions the promise, we end up producing what Abraham produced, which is an Ishmael, and we don't receive the intended good promise, the Isaac, the son of promise. We don't get the very best that God has for us. Here's the bottom line on that. You never produce by flesh what was promised by spirit, no matter how hard you try. So here's the question this morning that we're going to deal with as we end this fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. I want to make sure that you're free from religion. I know those of you that come to the digital cathedral, you're here faithfully every week. Uh, you're probably hip deep in this message of grace and liberty. But sometimes there's these little dogs that nip at our heels, that try to pull us back into what we've come out of. So I want to give you a pop quiz this morning. Very simple. This is not a complicated message today. It's a message just to make sure that we're walking in the fullness of the promise of God and we haven't attached ourselves to a Hagar and produced an Ishmael in our life. Now there might be some Ishmaels that you've produced that you're going to have to let go. Paul said in that passage of Scripture that Abraham had to let Hagar and Ishmael go. He had to drive them from the tent and push them off into the wilderness, which is not an easy thing to do. Some of the, some of the Ishmaels that we have birthed are close to our heart. I mean, we've put a lot of effort into it. We've put a lot of work into it. But it's not what God has promised. Therefore, we've got to separate and distance ourselves from it. I want to make sure that you're not producing any Ishmaels. Ishmaels are produced as we remain in bondage to religion. 
So the best thing to do is to make sure that all bonds, chains, cords, ties that we still may have that maybe today you're not even, not even aware of, but you're going to be aware of as I mentioned some things. And if those things are still holding to you or still bothering you in your mind, I want you to just, this morning, I want you to cut it free because as we continue on through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, for you to get the depth of what Paul is teaching, you have to make sure that you're free of religion. Paul about getting free from religion, getting free from the, from the Ishmael, that you can learn to produce the Isaac. So I've got five questions I want to ask you this morning. And we'll get to those in just a minute. But I want you to understand more what religion is about. Religion actually comes from the Latin word religio. I may have told you this before, but it's worth repeating. Religion comes from the Latin word religio, which defined is an obligation by humans to their God. That's what religio in the Latin means. It's an obligation by humans to their God. Uh, something is expected from humans to God in return for God's peace, God's blessing, and God's prosperity. It's, I think we could say it's the consummate, uh, religion is the consummate quid pro quo. God looks at us in religion and says, I, I demand your allegiance, I demand your worship, I demand that you uh, recognize me, I need something from you, I want you to be obligated to me, and if I receive that worship, that obligation, that commitment from you, then I will bless you back and, and prosper you. Now, what he demands can be anything, depending on the God that we worship, it can be anything from throwing the virgin into the volcano to, you know, praying the magic prayer, uh, dedicating your life to him. It can be all kinds of things. But religio means an obligation that we sense we have to give to God in order for God to bless us back. So what, what's expected from man, I don't care what the religion is, I don't care what name you put on it, it all, what is required back is always ritual and sacrifice. If you look a little bit deeper into the, into the word religio, it comes from two words. It comes from re, which is the prefix meaning to return to. Anytime you, you, know, you, you return something, you take it back. So the prefix re means simply to return. And legari means to bind. What religion is in its most purest sense is a return to bondage. That's, all, that's the basic definition of religion. It means, to re, it means to return to bondage or to repeat bondage. It's this institutional religio of bondage that Jesus completely destroyed. And he did not come to set up another religio. He didn't come to establish the Baptist religion. He didn't come to establish the Catholic religion. He didn't come to establish any religion. He came to do away with religion. We have, we have revived it. Now, also, what has revived today is a moving away from religio. Masses of people. Those of you at the Digital Cathedral, you have recognized, for the most part, you've recognized that religion is not something you really desire to be part of. You don't desire to be in bondage. You don't desire all the little things that go along with being in religion, and so you have come out of it. There's a mass move today to come out of religion. We recognize what Jesus said in, in that eighth chapter of John when he said that you'll know the truth. Truth will set you free. Truth is a person. It's Jesus. Jesus also went on to say in verse 36 of John chapter 8 that whom the Son makes free is absolutely free indeed. So there doesn't need to be a tie to religion in our lives when we're tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming into a new season. I mean, it's, it's universal. It's happening in... Every corner of the earth, we're coming into a new season as we come into it. I want to make sure, I want to make sure that we're not bringing any baggage of institutional religion along with us. The more that we can cut off, the freer we become. Religion is the thing that keeps you unsure and off balance, never feeling secure, 
and always trying to attain. Have you noticed how religion always tries to get you to a place of victory? Always trying to get you to a victorious life where the, the gospel that Paul taught and the gospel of grace isn't trying to get us to a place of victory. It's teaching us to live from that place of victory. A exactly opposite. Religion tries to get us to a place of victory by our sacrifice, our diligence, our discipline, so that God will bless us with a victorious lifestyle. Paul comes and says, wait a minute, the victorious lifestyle has already been established. What you need to do now is to awaken and open your eyes to what you already have and begin to live from that place. So let me give you a quick test this morning. Let me give you, as I said earlier, a pop quiz to make sure that religion does not have a hold on you in any place in your life. I want you to, be, I want you to cut anything today as we go through this, that you recognize that, you know what, that's still, that's still kind of a, a clinger to me. It's still kind of clinging on. All right, let, me, let me give you five things to ask yourself this morning to make sure that you're absolutely free out of this bondage that we've all come out of, <clears throat> but make sure that there isn't little, you know, those little dogs that nip at your heels that want to come back. All right, question number one is this. How can you tell if religion has a grip on your life. How can you tell that? Number one, you're not 100% sure that you're 100% forgiven. You're not 100% sure that you're 100% forgiven. This, this feeling of uncertainty keeps the wheels of religion going. And I will tell you, the, I deal with people all week long. I deal with a lot of people that are just coming in, into this liberty, the liberty of this message that we teach. And the thing that I find holds people in check is a sin consciousness. They're absolutely not sure for a lot of reasons, which we're going to get into some. They're not sure that they have been completely forgiven. There's still, still that little taint of sin consciousness that wants to hold them. The root, the root of that feeling that you're not forgiven is what keeps religion going. The root of that feeling is teaching that we must do something, that we've got to make some kind of sacrifice to be forgiven. That forgiven isn't just this gift that God gives. There has to be some kind of sacrifice, some kind of of, of agreement on our part with the addendum that we'll never do it again. And then when we repeat what we think is sin, time after time after time, then we bump into this thing of wondering, well, is forgiveness actually limited? Is there a time that I can run out of, out of forgiveness? And that, that thing kind of kicks in and we begin to question, well, have I gone so far now that there's absolutely no way back. I can't tell you how many people I deal with that feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. Let me assure you, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. This, this idea of sin consciousness, what religion fails to tell you, and this will release you from, from some bondage. This will release you from some bondage in this. You need to understand that the Father does not deal in forgiveness in installments. <laughs> we all came through that. We felt the only time that God forgave sin is when we asked him to. So he did it in installments, so, so to speak. When you asked, then he forgave. If you didn't ask, then there was no forgiveness. So it would be forgiveness here a little, there a little, based on... Based on you're asking him to forgive. Do you understand why now some people feel like they're not 100% forgiven? What if they forgot a sin? What if they weren't sorry enough? What if they didn't, you know, repent in, in sackcloth and ashes in tears? What if they didn't show enough remorse? Maybe they're actually not forgiven. What religion has failed to tell you is that God doesn't forgive in increments. What the Father doesn't do forgiveness just a little bit at a time. In fact, he has taken care of the sin problem. Sin, sin to God is non-existent. He has forgiven all sins, past, present, and future. Sin, sin is gone. You say, it, it is? Yes. John recognized it. Even, at, even when he first saw Jesus in John chapter 1, he looks at Jesus, points at Jesus, and said, there he is. 
There's the lamb that takes away, now watch, the sin, singular, the sin of the world, that, that bent, that thing that we think that we're born with that makes us a sinner. <clears throat> the church would call it an endemic nature, although that's never used in scripture. That's, that's, that's a man-made doctrine. He looks at Jesus and says, sin singular, Jesus has taken care of the sin problem. Now let me read you a couple of other verses, because this has got to be firmly fixed in your mind that sin is, that sin is not an issue in your life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul said, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in that condition... The last part of the verse says, He made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. <clears throat> Do you understand that? You were in this condition, and He's now forgiven you all of your trespasses by making you alive together with Him. There's no, no sin, no trespass, no transgression that has hold of you that brings death. We read in, in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says this. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, listen, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin. To put away sin. He's appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right, now I've got to put a caveat in here because every time I teach this, people, people get this idea that, okay, you can just do anything you want. I, I, I'll, I'll get messages this week, I guarantee you, that because of what I'm saying here, people are saying, well, you can just do anything you want. Well, you can do anything you want. And God's not going to judge you for it. All sin is done. What judges you is the sin. You're, you, are, you, are, you are not guilty. You are not judged for your sin. Listen, you're not judged for your sin. You're judged by your sin. The wages of sin is death. It's not judgment from God that creates the death that comes out of the sin or the dilemma or the problem. If you rob a bank, God's not putting that on your record. God's already forgiven you of robbing the bank. But does that mean you're not going to, to the penitentiary for 10 years? Absolutely not. There still is a kickback to the, to the transgression, to the wrong. It just doesn't come from God, all right? So you have to, I want you, I'm, I'm establishing this morning in your thinking that from God's view, which needs to become your view, your view always needs to be God's view. From God's view, partial forgiveness is completely bogus. He has, he has an entirety of forgiveness that has been given to you. God, God doesn't half forgive. The Father has put unforgiveness in your rearview mirror and you never have to look back at it. All right? So if you're still questioning that, Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says that where sin abounded, it, where sin goes to, on a scale of 1 to 10, let's say sin goes to 7. Where sin abounded, grace super exceeded. So if, if sin goes to seven, on a scale of one to ten, grace goes to nine. If sin goes to nine, grace goes to ten, right? You cannot out-sin grace. He's, he's handled the sin, sin issue. So this morning, I'm, I'm trying to get you free from any sin consciousness. Does that mean that you... you can just do whatever you want without repercussion. Absolutely not. Don't get that in your head ever. But from God's, God's point, from God's view, from any judgment or death that comes from him to you because of sin, it's non-existent. The sin issue has been totally resolved. Jesus put away sin once forever. All right, number two. This is the second question to ask yourself. Do you believe, is there a feeling within you that you're obligated to serve the Lord, that you're obligated to serve Him. Most of you came up in a church where there was a heavy, uh, heavy weight put on you to serve. That's a bondage. You, you, feel, you feel driven that you must do something for Jesus. 
You know, you come into the church, everybody needs to get a job. Everybody needs to serve. Everybody, everybody must. And if you don't, you're made to feel guilty. You're made to feel less than. All right, here's a newsflash from heaven. The Holy Spirit never drives us. The Holy Spirit always leads us. And as he leads us, he gives us the desire to do what he leads us to do. This morning, if you're here in the digital cathedral and you're feeling guilty because you're not serving, you, in, in, in the traditional context, you're not doing something in the church of value or what you've been told is of value and you feel bad about that, you feel guilty about it. You're serving, you're serving Jesus comes every day as you just live normal life. Whatever you like to do, you're serving. You, you be him wherever you go. You reflect him in whatever you do. That's serving. He doesn't drive you into that. He draws you into this. There's a verse in scripture that absolutely set me free about this because <clears throat> as a pastor, I, was, I felt driven all the time to do more and more and more. And I was on a hamster wheel for years, seven days a week, 365 days a year, never took vacation, didn't take vacation for years and years because I felt like I couldn't get away from all that I was doing. And it's a, it's a dangerous position to be in. There's a verse of scripture that absolutely set me free in this, and it was, it's Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 says that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I, I love that verse out of Philippians. I, I think, you know, I've highlighted it. I've got stars drawn by it because uh, it's just such, a, it's just such a, a powerful verse. Philippians chapter 1 in verse 12. Um, God puts the desire in you. God puts the will in you. And then when he puts the will in you, he gives you the ability to do that will. So if you believe that you are driven to serve, um, I can assure you that sooner or later you're going to find the Christian life is stale, it's dry, it just becomes duty because you feel this indebtedness. It's, that indebtedness is a trait of obligation. It's... It's the preacher's guilt trip that's put on you that comes out something like this. See if you've ever heard this in church, close to it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know how much Jesus has done for you. He lived for you. He died for you. Everything he did for you. Now, you lazy, ungrateful servant, what are you going to do for him? He's done so much for you. Now, what are you going to do for him? Does that sound familiar? See, that guilt works. But it's also the mindset that burns us out on religion. I, I use somewhat of that in some forms for a long time to get people to volunteer for positions in, in church. Pastors are, are famous at, you know, decorating that in a way that pulls you in and gets you to do something. But I found that that is a mindset that burns us out. You cheapen his love for you by thinking you owe him big time like you got some kind of duty that you have to pay for. Here, the only responsibility you have, here's the responsibility you have. Your responsibility is just to believe how much he loves you. Just like you are. How much he cares for you. Just all of your life, it's not about loving him, serving him, showing him how diligent you are. It's just coming to a place where you where you rest in his love and his care for you. To know the riches of his grace. Grace never obligates you. Grace never puts you under a guilt trip. Grace never demands of you. Paul tapped into a source that enabled him to go past this place of burnout. Can, can you go seven days a week? I think you can. If you learn how to rest in him, you can take a vacation all the time because you're not working out of your, your, your soul. You're not working out of your emotions. You're not working out of your own drive of your soul. And I, I, I learned that 
when I get cranky, when I get, you know, there's a place I get to that I know that I have been doing it in my effort and I need to back it off. Paul learned that there is a place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read this for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 14, Paul says this. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. It's, it's not an obligation that draws us. You know, trying to balance the scales out all he did for us, so I'm going to balance it out for doing something for him. It's a divine privilege. It's, it's a delight. And he, he hits that 14th verse. The love of Christ compels us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. It's, it's a divine privilege. It's a delight. We love him, 1 John chapter 4, I think verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. We, what we do for him is just in response as we're overwhelmed by what he's done for us. We're not trying to do something for him to invoke his favor to us. And that's so much of what the motivation is when you come in religion. And maybe some of that's still stuck on you. You still feel a little bit bad, like, man, I'm not doing, I, I've come into this grace message, I'm not doing anything for Jesus. Yes, you are. Your whole life is now Him. You understand you don't have to live for Him. But in fact, He's living as you. He's not even living through you. He's living as you. There is a, a total union there. So if what you do is out of a simple sense of love, it'll bear fruit. And it will continue to bear fruit. All right, question number three. I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but there's still, and it kind of ties to number two in a way, but it's still different because it has to do with identity. Number three question is this. Do you see yourself as a servant and not a son? Do you see yourself, when you look at your life, when you see, when you evaluate your walk with Christ, do you see yourself as a servant or do you see yourself as a joint heir with him? From the Father's view, do you see yourself as a servant or do you see yourself as a son? We serve by appearance, no doubt about it. I did a teaching a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that said we are sons by, uh, we're sons by position, but we're servants by manifestation. And that's, that is such a truth. We serve by appearance, but we know that we're sons by position. That's the mentality. So I want, if, if you're feeling like, well, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm just here to serve. I'm here just to serve God. That's the mentality. That is an Old Testament mentality. You understand under the Old Covenant, there were no sons of God. Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. There were no sons of God walking the earth like you and me today. Jesus was the firstborn. You and I followed the pattern of Jesus. Because there were no sons of God in the Old Testament, there was an uncertainty of position that produced a rational, normal response of performance. And that performance could never be enough, so they suffered it. The Old Covenant suffered in a lot of performance anxiety. That's what burned Israel out so often. Israel's a nation lived in obedience of God, then they fell off. Then they went to obedience and fell off. They repented. The, the nation of Israel was like this, and it all evolved around performance anxiety. They couldn't be obedient long enough, strong enough to, to achieve what they felt they needed to achieve to receive the blessing from God. What do you think it was that motivated Moses to take ten commandments, five that were interpersonal relationship from man to man and five that were relationship or that would govern uh, man's relationship to God. So five were, were parallel, five were horizontal. What, what, what took Moses, why did Moses take those 10 commandments and stretch them out to 613? What do you think it was? I can tell you absolutely what it was. It was a performance anxiety. It was, it was trusting in observance of do's and do not do's to please God. Okay, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's, that's a, that was one of the commands. So Moses then develops all these subsets to keep the Sabbath day holy. You can't walk but so far. You can't do any labor. Uh, you can't make an animal work. I mean, you, you develop a whole lot of rules of laws 
to try to enforce the observance of this performance. And the more laws you develop, the further you are away from obeying the original law and you can't even obey the subset. What, what do you think created all of the laws of the Catholic Church or the Baptist Church or the Pentecostal Church? They all have their own peculiar set of laws. What did that? I'll tell you exactly what did it. Not, not seeking a father reflected in Jesus, but instead seeing an Old Testament God that was angry, judicial, judgmental, punitive, that demanded absolute obedience. Religial obligation by humans to their God in return for peace, for blessing, for prosperity. That has what has driven religious law today. It's what drove Moses to go from 10 to 613. And what do we do if we're not living in the, in the peace, the blessing, and the prosperity that we think that we should have? What, what did religion teach us to do? I'll tell you what it taught you to do. Double down on what you've been doing. Double down on your giving. Double down on the obedience. Double, double down, uh, you know, down on, on your commitment to him. Try harder to do what didn't produce the first time. That's, that's a formula for insanity. Trying to do harder what didn't produce to begin with. Try harder to make it now produce by doing more of it. Maybe that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby you cry, Daddy, Father, that stuff is gone. All right, number four. Question number four this morning. We're, we're weeding ourselves out of sin consciousness, of wrong thinking in position. Number four is a big one. Number four, do you think that you have to overcome life's trials, that you have to be a victor in life? Or Jesus will blot your name from the book of life? Oh my, this, that was a gigantic fear. That one day I'm going to stand before God and God, God might just play this video up on a huge screen and all my family and friends and acquaintances are going to watch my life on a video, all the thoughts, the intents I had that I never did, but I thought them in my mind. And I'm going to stand there nervously as he looks through this book and, and, and looks for my name and, uh, and he can't find it there. All because I failed the test of life. My name was blotted out of the book. Think about this. There's 31,102 verses in the Bible. One verse in the book of Revelation, which is a highly symbolic, metaphorical book, talks about blotting your name out of the book of life. Don't you think, like so many other things, that are, we have bought as truth that are not truth, that if it was that important, carried that much weight, that out of 31,102 verses, that he would have mentioned it more than one time. This is one big reason why I spend so much time emphasizing it's not what you do it's what he has done. Because we have these mindsets. We still carry a little bit of this religion within us that says, if he's not pleased, I'm going to miss. And I may be eternally separated. If you haven't looked at Hell's Illusion, that six, six teaching series I did, you need to look at that. You need to watch it. When you have that mindset that you have to overcome, when you have this mindset that the Father sits on a throne and he's writing your name in and then you mess up and he blots it out real quick and then you repent, he writes it in again, you totally ignore what he has done for you. John chapter 16, verse 33. Let's read this verse together. Look at this. John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Jesus was our overcomer. We overcame as Jesus. Jesus overcame as us. Remember what he did, he didn't do just for you. You will never hit the target if you live thinking that what Jesus did, he did for you. You have to put yourself in the middle of the story. What he did, he did as you. We were crucified with Christ. 
And Paul said that if we died with Christ, we believe that we also rose with him. Peter said that through the resurrection, we have been born again from death to life. So the, 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 the question is this, to us is this, do you really believe that Jesus was an overcomer? Do you really believe that you overcame as Jesus? Do you really believe that he took all of humanity into himself as himself, brought all of us in, drew all of us in, then overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil as us? Do you really believe he could do that? Are you sure? Are you absolutely certain? Because overcoming is not about how well you perform. Overcoming is not about how well you obey. It's about the overcomer who has and through everything as you. If we're going to be 1 John 4, 17, as he is in this present world, then you've got to know who Jesus is because you have the authority then and the life to be as he is in this present world. But it doesn't mean that you have to overcome it yourself. He came to overcome so that you don't have to overcome within yourself. You can, you can be in union to him and the overcoming was accomplished together. That's good news. All right, question number five. This is the last question. You think of following Jesus in terms of what you have to give up. You think of following Jesus. You got this mindset back there tucked away somewhere. That when you really, if you really go all out, if you really cut everything, just say, okay, look, this, this is my life. This, I step over the line. That it's about giving up your time, your talent, your finances, your resource, your fun, your enjoyment. It's about giving up a good life. See, religion, religion tells you that to follow Jesus, you have to give up everything. And it's couched in such terms that it's very unappealing. That's half the story. We never were taught the divine exchange that happens that he's actually not trying to take from us. He's trying to add to us. Illustrated well in a story in, in Luke chapter 18 that I want to read for you. Religion never tells you what you receive in exchange. It only dwells on the sacrifice, the effort, the loss of all these things that make life good. Well, what if what Jesus is trying to give you is of the same essence but gooder? <laughs> what if he's not asking for all your finances to drain you dry, but he's actually saying, look, let's take our finances together. Let's your finances become mine and my finances become yours. That's a good exchange. Right? Let, let's read a story from Luke chapter 18 because the guy didn't get it and many still don't get it today, what he's driving at. Luke chapter 18 and let's start in verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Now listen carefully to this story because this sounds like many of us. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question many ask. Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Verse 20, You know the commandments, Jesus said, Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. See, the young man came with, Give me a do. Jesus said, You want a do? I'll give you a do. He gives him a due in verse 20. In verse 21, look at the pride that comes back. And the, young, and, the, and the ruler said, all these things I've kept from my youth. What a lying dog. He didn't keep those from his youth. So he said, I've met the due. So now Jesus says, okay, you've met the due. Now I'm going to go for the exchange here. Let's see if you have ears to hear. Let's see if you in the digital cathedral have ears to hear this this morning. Verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, distribute to the poor, watch, watch, and you'll have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said, you did, you, 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 you tell me you did all the do. So here's one last do that's not in the law, but it's gonna, you're going to see whether you really are trusting me and whether you're seeing my life as your life. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and, and you'll have riches in heaven. Now, verse 23, he didn't get it. Verse 23, 
But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. So he had a choice. Treasures in heaven or earthly treasure. He wouldn't make the exchange. Was Jesus trying to steal from him? No, Jesus didn't say give your money to the ministry. He said go give it to the poor. And in doing that, he said, this is what I'm asking. And he said, I'm going to exchange for you. The exchange that God makes, whether it's your life for his life, your unrighteousness for his righteousness, whatever it is, you always benefit from the exchange. He never takes from you, but what he gives you back more. He's actually telling the young ruler, would you like a checking account or would you like to have the whole bank? So Jesus said, if you give up your checking account, I'll give you the whole bank. The exchange of Jesus to us always benefits us. For example, he was made to be sin with our sin that we might be righteous with his righteousness. He tasted our death so that we could taste his life. He took our poverty and gave us his abundance. He took our shame and gave us his glory. He endured our, re our rejection and gave us his acceptance. He took our old man, put it to death, that we might have the new man that would be lived out as him. So in this new season, let me just, let me conclude this up for you. In this new season, let's decide that we're going to leave all forms of institutional religion. I didn't say you had to leave your church. Didn't say you had to leave your friends. I'm saying all of those religios, those returning to bondages, all those things that would try to connect us and tie us, hold us down from the exchange life that Jesus is trying to give us. Let's let those go. Let's, let's break out into nothing but, but graciousness, his goodness to us. Religion always builds on right actions. Religion always builds on right beliefs and theology and doctrine. None of those which we will ever score 100% in. That's one reason I don't, I'm not a prolific author. I don't write a book because I know that what I believe this year probably will be adjusted next year and the year after that so that what I write this year will not be in full definition of what I believe at that time. Paul never built on theology. He never built on, 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 on actions or beliefs. He built on Jesus plus nothing and what Jesus has done for us. Wherever you see grace in the Bible, substitute the word Jesus. And it'll give you some insight into Jesus and to grace. There's nothing you can add to the gospel. It's a finished work. So be free this morning. Absolutely be free. I, 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 I want to just hit these one more time. If you're not 100% sure that you're 100% forgiven, know that you are. If you feel obligated to serve the Lord, you're free this morning. I set you free of that obligation. If you see yourself as a servant and not a son, I put you in position this morning as a son of God. If you think you have to overcome, I'll tell you this. If you think you have to overcome, you overcome. For, uh, Romans 5, 17, for if by one man's offense death entered, even so by one man's righteousness, gift of righteousness, and grace, Shall we reign in life by the one Jesus Christ? You're not going to be blotted out. You're secure in your position. You are not what you do. You are who you be. And if you think in following Jesus, you have to give up everything. Let me assure you this morning that what he has to give you is way beyond anything you can give him. There's nothing you can add to the gospel. Let's believe and respond today to all that he's provided and given to us through everything he's done as us. He's given us a truckload, guys. He's given us a lot. Let's spend, time, let's spend some time this week just meditating on it. Now, don't, don't turn off. I'm going to be doing something at the end of every week's teaching that is brand new. I'm going to give you a question for the week. And that question for the week is going to be what we lead off Wednesday night with. And it will relate to the teaching that we've do just done. Thank you for being with me this morning at the Digital Cathedral. Uh, 
Hope you'll come back next week. Invite somebody. Share this teaching with people. Share it on your Facebook wall. Make some positive comments if you enjoyed it, if it ministered to you. And just know this today, that whom the sun sets free, which is you, you're absolutely free indeed. God bless you. We'll see you back next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. Have a wonderful week. Okay, everybody, let me just tell you once again, thank you for being with me today. I hope you really enjoyed the teaching, got something out of it. Uh, no More Chains, that's the title of the message today. And I'm doing something a little different uh, this morning. I'm going to give you a question for the week, right? Something you can think about. And we will actually deal with this question on Wednesday night. First thing out of the shoot, this will be what we... Uh, work off of on Wednesday at the uh, Wednesday Night Live. If you're not with me on Wednesday Night Live, let me make sure that you come over and join Don Keithley Ministries page. And um, then w that's where I do the Wednesday night. I don't do it on public Facebook anymore. So here's my question this week. Before I give you the question, let me thank all of you for being with me. You know, I, I don't take any of you for granted. Thank you so much. I appreciate your prayers. I also appreciate the support. It's only through the gifts of those that are part of the Digital Cathedral Wednesday Night Live that make contributions that enable us to keep going forward and do what we do. The monthly gifts are, are awesome because it helps us build a platform of a budget so we know what we have to work with every month. If you're watching this on Facebook, you can go to donkeithley.com, which is my website, and there's a share button. You can hit the share button, take you to PayPal, and you can do a one-time or a monthly, whatever you can cheerfully do. I don't teach tithing. I don't teach sacrificial giving, none of those things. If God has blessed you abundantly and what we do blesses you, then be a part of it. Fair enough? All right, here's the question of the week that we will deal with Wednesday night. The question is this. What do you think is the one strongest pull that keeps people in the bondage of religion. When people hear this tremendous message, why don't they grab it? What do you think is the one pull? I've got several ideas I'll share Wednesday, but I'm anxious to see your comments. What is the one strongest pull that keeps people in the bondage of religion? Share it in the comments Wednesday. We'll talk about it, and let's see what God says to you. Fair enough? All right, see you Wednesday night, next Sunday. Thank you for all your help. God bless.